Uh, we've been studying through the letter to the Philippians for, gosh, several, several weeks now. And Paul, we kind of we hit a point last week and we're at a point in the in the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians where he's talking about spiritual growth. And he's talking to these Christians in Philippi about how they can mature in their faith, how they can grow as followers of Jesus. And last week we talked about this. We talked about kind of the the philosophical and the theological basis for why we grow and and how we grow in Christ. And today we're going to continue with the same theme. But I actually hope today is very practical because Paul actually gives us some really practical steps of how to grow in our faith. And I hope there's some things that you can walk out of here today and begin to put into practice in your life immediately as you seek to grow in your faith. And uh, I know that many of you, that's what you want. You want to grow. You want to mature spiritually, but you just don't know. You're just wondering what's the next step I need to take. And hopefully today the words of the Apostle Paul will help us this morning. So if you will look with chapter three and we'll start in verse 17. Paul says to the church of Philippi, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds on earth, minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I'm going to jump right into it this morning. First practical truth that Paul gives us if we want to grow in our faith, is find is to find faithful examples of Christians in your life to imitate. See, all throughout this letter, Paul has provided for his readers examples of how to live a joyful life. Examples of other Christians who model the humility of Jesus for others to see. So if you remember, he said, hey, look at Timothy's life. He says to the church in Philippi, look at Timothy's life. You know him, man, He's a good example for you of what it means to follow after Jesus. And then Paul does the same thing. He says, hey, you guys know Epaphroditus? You know how, how he sacrifices so much for the sake of the gospel? You know how he loves you? You know how he loves me and how he loves others? Look at Epaphroditus' life and follow his example. And Paul even, uh, what he understands, what Paul does, is he understands the reality is that all of us are influenced. Everyone. We're all influenced by somebody and all of us, our personalities, even our spiritual growth is all it's. We are a sum of all the influences in our life. See, none of us are self-made. We all think we all like to think that uh, we're self-made and we're individuals. But the truth of the matter is you are the sum of all the influences in your life. You are and you were and you currently are being influenced by people in your life. And so Paul says, if you want to grow spiritually into healthy and mature disciples of Jesus, you must be intentional about who you allow to influence you in your life. And he says, you need to find examples of other people that will influence you and serve as an example for you to follow after Jesus. Because it matters who you follow. Chris Farley Fat guy in a little coat, anybody? Chris Farley, Saturday Night Live, hilarious. But Chris Farley, he actually literally called himself. As a young comedian, he would tell his friends, I am a disciple of John Belushi. 
Chris Farley, that's who he wanted to be like. He stated on multiple occasions, I want to be like John Belushi. He studied John Belushi's life. He said explicitly, I am a disciple of John Belushi. I want to be like him in every way he was quoted as saying. And the truth is that he was indeed influenced by John Belushi. And the similarities of their lives are almost identical. Just like John Belushi, Chris Farley moved, began his comedy career with an improv group in Chicago called Second City. Just like Belushi, Chris Farley got his major break on Saturday Night Live. Just like John Belushi, he had major success in movies as the kind of overweight, funny, frat guy, a drinker, smoker, stoner kind of guy. And just like John Belushi, Chris Farley had a reputation in Hollywood and in New York of partying harder than any other celebrity. He was known for his fast and his hard lifestyle. And just like John Belushi, Chris Farley died alone of a drug overdose at age 33. See, Chris Farley looked to John Belushi as his example, and it killed him. See, examples and influences matter. They matter. Which is why it's important that we choose the right people to influence us in our lives. And Paul here in this text even offers himself to this church as an example. He says, join in imitating me. And I read that and I'm like, dang, Paul, that sounds a little arrogant, dude. But Paul admitted in, in our passage last week that he's not perfect. But he's, he's, not, he's not saying follow me because I'm the example or I'm perfect. He's saying, I am striving for obedience just like everyone else. He's not hoisting himself up as the example of Christian maturity. But he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, follow me as I follow after Christ. And what Paul is saying, he's saying Christ is the example. But as you watch my life, and Paul's saying to this church, as you see parts of my life that are in line with the way of Jesus, take from me. Do as I do as much as it helps you become more like Jesus. And he goes on and he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul says, don't just watch my life, but look to others, faithful Christians in your life. Look to them as your example. Find faithful examples of people who are following Jesus and imitate them. See, in many churches, this is what's called discipleship or mentorship where a mature Christian befriends someone who isn't as far along in their spiritual journey and models for them how to pray, how to read the Bible, how to love one's spouse, how to raise children, how to share your faith, how to overcome sin. And that's, that's what discipleship is. That's what mentorship is. And Paul says, find somebody in your life who you respect spiritually, someone who has a relationship with God that's further along than yours, that you would like to have yourself and learn from them. And now I want to be really practical here because that sounds really good and everybody goes, yeah, I want that, but how do I get that? And most of you, I know this is what you want. And so I want to be very, very practical and give you a couple of steps to take that will help you. It's not as intimidating as you think to find a mentor, so to speak. The first step is you got to look to real people to learn from. I know some of us, we like to just teach ourselves on our own. We like to listen to podcasts. We like to read books. And we just like to, I can do this on my own podcast books. Those resources are awesome, but they are no substitute for real life examples and mentors in your life. And almost everyone in this room became a follower of Jesus, I'm willing to bet, because someone, a real person in your life, told you about the faith and modeled it in front of you. 
And I'm convinced that the only way that you can grow and mature in your faith is the exact same way. You were introduced to Christ through the example of someone. And you will grow in Christ through the example of someone as well. And so you need people in your life that you can observe, that you can ask questions, that you can seek counsel with. And like I said, podcasts, books, that stuff is great, but it can't replace real people. And one of the things I love about the church, and even this church, is that the scriptures call us a body. Meaning that none of us have all that we need on our own. We need each other. Some people are feet. Some people are ears. Some people are hands. Some people are mouths. Some people are eyes. Some people are the core strength. Corey, (laughs) you got to have core strength. And there are people in our church that kind of just serve as that strength that holds everything together. And the metaphor in the Bible, what it's teaching us that we ought to learn is that we ought to learn and grow from a multitude of teachers around us. Because on our own, we don't have the resources we need. And we need to learn from the people around us how to grow and become more like Jesus. Because every single person's congregation has something to offer each of us as we seek to become more like Jesus. So when I moved to Brooklyn uh, three years ago with my family, we're up on our anniversary. It's fast. But when we moved here, I realized very, very quickly that I have a lot to learn. This is very different from the suburbs, you know? (laughs) People are different here. Ministry is very different from here. Life is different from here. Raising children is different here. And I, and I tried to read the books and the blog articles and everything early on. I, how do I get sort of my mind around what it's like to live in this city? And the books helped to a little bit, but it helped a little bit. But I came to a point where I realized to myself, if I'm going to make it in this city, I needed to find an older, seasoned, veteran pastor in this city who's been at it a long time who could show me the way to lead a church, show me the way to lead a family in this city, and show me how to maintain a vibrant relationship with Jesus amidst the very unique struggles of Brooklyn. And so I came across, I did my research, I started asking all my pastor friends, who is the example that I need to follow? Who has been doing this a long time and is godly and leads a healthy church? And they said, you need to meet Pastor Edwin Cologne. And he, Edwin, is a well-respected pastor here in New York. Every pastor in the city respects Edwin. And he pastors in downtown Brooklyn. Listen, nearly half of his church on any given Sunday is homeless. That's the church he leads. Almost everyone in his congregation is below the poverty line. But yet he leads a healthy, growing, vibrant church with people that are the outcasts of society. But he loves them well, and they love him. And I'm like, that is the guy that I want to be like. And he's, uh, he's got a difficult ministry. That's not easy. But it is thriving. And he has a thriving marriage, a thriving relationship with his children, and a thriving relationship with Jesus. And so I said, I've got to, get, I've got to position myself near this guy so I can learn as much as I can. So I found out that he leads a prayer meeting for other pastors in Brooklyn. And so I said, perfect. I showed up early. I sat at the seat right next to where I knew he was going to be sitting. And when he came in, I just started badgering him with questions. What's it like to lead a church in New York? What's it like to lead a family? How do you maintain a vibrant relationship with Jesus in the midst? And he just started giving me all these wisdom and say, this is what I've been doing over the years. This is what I've been doing over the years. This is how I've learned to pray in the midst of the the busyness of the city. And I have, over the last three years, I have learned what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in this city through Pastor Edwin. And he has been a mentor to me. And now that I've kind of built him up, I'm happy to announce that he's going to be preaching for us next week. So I would encourage you guys to be here. But the point is that Edwin, without Edwin, my faith would not be as strong. 
And he's just one of the many examples of people in my life who have impacted me in profound ways. And you need that as well. And so here's my practical suggestion for you. Super practical. At some point today, take out a sheet of paper and write a list of all the areas in your life where you would like to grow spiritually in the next six months. It may be that you want to become more hospitable. It may mean that you want to grow in your knowledge of the Bible. It may mean you want to go deeper in your prayer life. It may mean you want to be a better spiritual leader to your family. Or it may be that you know, you're single and you're trying to figure out what it's like to follow Jesus faithfully as a single person in New York. My advice to you is to write that stuff down and then look around this church and find people that seem to be mature in those areas. And go, wow, that person really seems to have a a deep prayer life. Or that person really seems to know the scriptures. And start observing them. And perhaps, you know, when the service is over, when we're hanging out in the hallway, walk up to them and just start asking them questions. Invite them out to lunch. Buy their coffee. Buy their lunch. And just ask them, what is it that you've learned that has helped you develop a life of prayer like this? Or has helped, what have you learned about leading a family? Because you really seem to have a handle on, on doing it in a way that honors God. Can you teach me what you know? And not only will you develop a deeper friendship if you do that, but you will have an example that will help you grow deeper in that area of your life. Super practical. Everybody can do it. See, there are people in this church that can be good examples for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer the German theologian. He said, imagine every Christian you meet as a bringer of the gospel. This is one of the reasons at the end of our service, we always read Matthew 28. And in recent months, we've started just having everybody come up and give testimonies of how God is using them. The reason we did that is because it's so that you can see and hear from examples of everyday regular people in this congregation who are faithfully serving Jesus. And they can be an example to you in whatever area of their life that God sort of leads that to you. See, we need the example of other Christians in our lives to show us how to follow Jesus in areas where we are weak. So we need to find real life examples. The second thing that Paul sort of teaches us is that we need to choose our examples wisely. Listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, for many of whom... I've often told you, remember, he says, you need to find people that are worthy of imitating. He says, but there are many that I've often told you and tell you now with tears that walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. Paul says you need to be careful when looking for examples to follow because there are people that will lead you astray. And he says some people walk as enemies of the cross. And he's not talking about non-Christians. He's talking about false teachers within the community that are bad influences. And that's really powerful language. And you're like, man, Paul, that's a little mean to say, like enemies of the cross. But he explains their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. And now just to break this down, what type of people is Paul talking about that we need to avoid? There's a phrase in here that I think is the key to understanding that. And it's a phrase that trips up a lot of scholars, myself included. He says, their God is their belly. Most people read that and they go, oh, they're gluttons. These are people that are pleasure seekers. They worship their appetite. They do what what pleases them. But others have read that phrase, their God is their belly. And they wonder if Paul's talking about a different group of people. See, some of you may remember about a year and a half ago, we studied through the letter of Galatians. 
And in that letter, Paul, like he starts, you know, Philippians, he's like, I love you guys. You guys are such a great church. Uh, Galatians, Paul's like, what in the world is wrong with you people? See, he was furious when he wrote Galatians. You remember this? Why was he so mad? Because there was false teaching within the church in Galatia. See, this church in Galatia, it was growing. You had Jews and non-Jewish people worshiping together. It was this beautiful thing where the gospel was uniting these two distinct groups of people. It was beautiful. But this group, uh, this, this small sect of Jewish Christians came into the community and they started telling the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, look, it's great that you guys are followers of Jesus. We love that. But to really be one of us, to really be a child of God, you've got to become Jewish. And you've got to obey our food laws and you have to obey our rituals. And they said to the men, you have to be circumcised. And Paul comes in, he drops it. When he finds out about this, he writes a letter immediately. And if you've ever read the Galatians, you know that Paul is angry at this. And he says that God does not save anyone and God does not accept anyone based on their ethnicity, their rituals, or their diet. We are saved by and only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection alone. And Paul says if anybody adds to that gospel, whether it's a diet, whether it's circumcision, whether it is whatever, if anybody adds to the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, they're not distorting the gospel, they're dismantling it. Remember, we said Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. But this group of Christians in Galatia were saying Jesus plus dietary laws. And so when Paul says their God is their belly, some scholars think he might actually be talking about this same false teaching. And today we simply call this legalism. This idea, and many of you have experienced it, and it takes different forms. Many of you have experienced it in the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you have experienced it in Pentecostal churches. And many of you have experienced it in evangelical churches. Every sort of stream of Christianity tends to have its own ways in which we adopt legalism. And Paul says we should never add to the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing else equals our salvation. And so Paul says their God is their belly. And some think he might be referring to legalistic Christians who said, You've, yeah, you, Jesus is enough to save you, but you also have to eat the way we eat to be a faithful Christian. Now, why did I take all the time to explain that? The reason I explain that is because I'm not exactly sure what their God is their belly means. I don't know if Paul is talking about people who just are pleasure seekers and they just do whatever they want. And I'm not sure if God's talking about legalistic Christians in Galatia. But let's just assume that it means both. Let's assume that maybe Paul is saying, watch out for those who add to the gospel with legalism and watch out for the people who have not allowed the gospel to shape their lives and they just live any which way they want. I believe that Paul is saying, watch out for those who seem to have no shame when it comes to the way they live their life and watch out for those whose teaching actually undermines the grace of God. See, there are many people that their influence on our lives is that when, if we're trying to follow Jesus, they may say, yeah, yeah, but do this, do this with us. Paul says, don't follow them. And there may be other people that were trying to follow Jesus faithfully, but because they've added so much to the gospel, there's no grace. And we end up becoming mean and self-righteous and pharisaical right along with them. Paul says, find someone who will not glory in your shame, but also find someone that will not shame you every time you fail but will point you to the cross of Jesus who cleanses you and forgives you. 
See, Paul says our objective is to follow Jesus and not anyone else. But God uses other people in our lives to, show, to help us understand what this means. So the call of the Christian life for us is to seek out examples in our lives that can show, of people that can show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in both belief and in practice. And as you search for these examples, Paul encourages us to look for people who encourage us in our belief. They show us how to believe, what to believe, but they also show us how to live. But notice the last thing Paul says. He says, look for examples who do not set their minds on earthly things. And Paul moves into verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what are some practical steps towards spiritual growth? Find examples in your life to follow. But the second thing is, is live your life with an eternal perspective. Think about eternity. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Don't forget that. Live as citizens of heaven here on earth. And this is a very practical step. Think about eternity. See, if there's one thing that I think that keeps most Christians from maturing in our faith, especially those that are my age or those that are younger Christians, it's that we don't think about heaven enough. Many of us just don't think about eternity enough. We've got careers, we've got families, we've got 10-year plans, we've got Roth IRAs, we've got 401ks, we've got vacations that we want to go on and bucket lists that we want to check off. And we can even be spiritual about it. And we can say, there's mission trips I want to do, there's things I want to accomplish for God, or there's, there's social issues I want to fight, or I want to see the church grow, or I want to see the church become healthy. But Paul calls all of this setting our minds on earthly things if they're not first set on the kingdom of heaven. Are they bad things? No. But are they, they aren't heavenly things either. Here's what I mean. I used to be a pastor at a church that had a lot of senior adults. But I used to be a pastor at a church where we had a lot of senior adults. And they were so compassionate. They were so kind and generous. And every so often I would spend an afternoon sitting on their front porch doing nothing. And it was awesome. And every so often I'd go on a senior adult trip, apple picking. We'd go random places. And I would... One of the things that fascinated me about these older Christians that have been following Jesus for decades and decades is how much they talked about heaven and how much they sang about heaven. And I used to think, well, it's because they'll be there soon. That's why they're talking about it all the time. <laughs> They've lived their life. Now they're looking ahead to what's coming. But the more I think about it, I think their fixation on heaven didn't have anything to do with the fact that they were closer to die, more likely closer to dying than I was. I think it had everything to do with Christian maturity. I think that they had matured in their faith, and I think that in their lifetime they had seen politicians come and go. They had seen wars start, wars end, and wars start back up again. They had been members of that church for decades and decades. They'd seen pastors come, pastors go, new strategies to reach the neighborhood come and go. Most of them had had success. They went on great vacations. They bought houses. They bought cars. They collected trinkets. They had done it all. But I think 70 years in, 80 years in, they just came to realize that those things aren't eternal. And they found that those things did not make them more patient. They did not make them more kind or loving or peaceful or self-control. And as they matured, they learned to set their mind on things above 
as Paul encourages. And as they did that and they became heavenly minded, they actually became much more like Jesus here on earth. I think what Paul is saying is that when we live as if this world is all there is, when we set our minds on earthly things and we get so caught up in the now, we become like the rest of the world, which means that we'll put our hope in things that rust and decay. We focus our energies on being successful and secure rather than on our, rather than on our character and rather than on blessing other people. Others of us, if we, if we don't have a heavenly mind, especially here in New York, we won't grow to appreciate the diversity of God's kingdom. Everybody, t- I've said this many times before. We live in the most diverse city probably on the planet. And everybody says, New York is a melting pot. But one of my favorite comedians, he's like, no, New York is not a melting pot. It's a place where there's a bunch of pots that all exist and they don't talk to other pots, you know? <laughs> and if you look around New York, there's the Korean neighborhood. There's the Chinese neighborhood. There's the, the hipster neighborhood. And there's the Hispanic neighborhood. And we all just kind of keep to ourselves. But if our minds, are, and, and, if, and if our minds are set on earthly things, it's so easy to become tribal. Because it's just so easy to hang out with those people you know and eat at the kind of restaurants that you're comfortable with. And if our minds are set on earthly things, not because we're prejudiced, not because we'll just simply become tribal and only spend time with people that are just like us. But if our mind is fixed on heaven where every tribe, tongue, language, and nation is gathered around the throne of Jesus, we will become better neighbors. Because we will see the people in our building that are different from us as people that we, Lord willing, will spend eternity with. When you put your eyes on earthly things, it's easy to be discouraged in the midst of suffering. But if your eyes are on heaven, you will know that there is coming a day where God will wipe away your tears and that your pain will only be for a season. And finally, when you set your mind on earthly things, you fail to actually see Jesus for who he is. Because Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, reigning and ruling over his creation. Now I want you to do just a thought experiment for me. Let's imagine scriptures tell us that in in heaven, Jesus is on his throne. But the Bible also uses the metaphor of a banquet called the wedding feast of the lamb. Think about a, a reception at a nice wedding and there's a big banquet table and Jesus is sitting on a throne at the head of the table. And there's great food at the banquet table. There's great wine. We're we're surrounded by all these people we knew on earth. We're surrounded by people we read about. Uh, We're surrounded by people from the Bible. We're surrounded, uh, surrounded by all these followers of Jesus. And we're all toasting the king who is sitting at the head of the table. And think about it for a moment. Moses stands up and he says, He raises his glass and he says, Christ did this for me. And he tells stories about God's faithfulness. David stands up with tears in his eyes. He says, Christ forgave me even when I sinned against him. Murder, adultery, God still forgave me. The woman at the well stands up. She cling, cling, cling. She says, when nobody else saw me, when nobody else loved me, Jesus did. And he gave me my life back. And I imagine maybe there's some Roman guard that was present at the crucifixion. And he says, I put him to death. I hammered the nails in his hands. But from the cross, he looked down on me and said, Father, forgive him for he doesn't know what he's doing. He saved me even though I put him to death. And then, you know, C.S. Lewis stands up. I'll be sitting next to him. I'll be badgering him with questions. 
C.S. Lewis says a few things. Billy Graham gets up, says a few things. And then I want you to imagine for a moment that a, a, a woman stands up. She was never famous on earth. She was a widow, never had any children, lived in a small town in a small country somewhere. She was never wealthy, but she gave her life to Jesus as a little girl. And she was faithful to him her whole life. And she clung to him even in the painful seasons of her life. She prayed faithfully. She read and studied the scriptures every day. And she was known as someone who shared her faith with everyone she met. And imagine she stands up and she says, my life was marked with a lot of pain, but Jesus gave me his life and I've been faithful to him my whole life on earth. And then someone else down the table recognizes her and stands up and says, hey, that's Miss Johnson. We'll call her Miss Johnson. She prayed for, she just never, she prayed for me for decades And without her prayers, I never would have come to know Jesus. And another person stands up and says, I knew Miss Johnson. When no one else cared about me, she did. And she shared Jesus with me. And she led me to faith. And she was there when I was baptized. And somebody stands up and says, Miss Johnson never even met me. But she led my mother to Christ. And my mother led me to Christ. And people are standing up everywhere. And they're like, Miss Johnson, her life was so faithful on earth that she, I'm here because of her. And for hours and hours and hours, people are standing up and they're saying, because of Miss Johnson, I know the one who's sitting at the head of the table. And I imagine that Jesus stands up from the table after all of that is done and he raises his glass, which is full of grape juice, of course. (laughs) And he says, well done, Miss Johnson, you good and faithful servant. Now, that's a fictional Exercise, But consider your own life and think about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Think about the banquet table. Think about those moments where for eternity we're going to be around the followers of Jesus and we're talking about all that God did in our lives here on this earth and all the ways that God used us. What kind of example are you setting in your life? What type of person are you becoming? And what, will ma- what in your life are you doing today? That will matter on that day. And find yourself a Miss Johnson. An example in your life to follow as as you follow after Jesus. And in my opinion, there are several Miss Johnsons in this room that you can learn from. We need faithful examples and we need to fix our eyes on eternity. Those are practical steps for you to grow more and more like Jesus. Let's pray.